0: Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 196. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snn And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Quick announcement, Uh, as I said in the last few pods here, uh, we are about two months away from the SNN Network Canada virtual event that's happening December seventh through 9, 2021. Paul Andriola from Small Cap Discoveries and myself on behalf of SNN Network are teaming up again to highlight our neighbors to North Canada. In the last five to 10 years, small, micro and nano cap investors have been finding value accretive opportunities on the TSX, TSX Venture, CSC and now the NEO. And so we wanted to host an event that encapsulates all of those opportunities in one place. So you can expect three days of keynotes, educational panels, company presentations, and one-on-one meetings. To register, please go to canada.snn.network and click the register button. We look forward to seeing you all there. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Harris Perlman. He is a full-time microcap investor, microcap club contributor, and better known as at Otter Market on Twitter. We've crossed paths at many events over the years, and I'm really stoked to finally get Harris on the show to discuss his passion for microcaps. As you will hear, Harris was a big gamer when he was younger, and while considering investing in the stock market, he notes that with investing, you want to play the easiest games possible, which ultimately led him towards his journey into investing in microcap stocks. Listen in to hear his investing framework, how the MicroCab universe has changed, various ideas, and much more. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 196 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Harris Perlman. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And I'm very excited to have our, our next guest on here today. We've definitely crossed paths at every Microcap event that's been out there. A fellow uh, millennial in the Microcap trenches. And I'm talking about Harris Perlman, better known as at Otter Market on, on Twitter. For all you Fin Twitters out there, he's a full time private investor as well as active member of Microcap Club. With that, Harris, it's a long time coming, man. I'm so stoked to have you on.
1: Yeah, man, happy to be here.
0: So, I, I mean, I, I, should we give the people what they want from the get go and, and going and digging right into the microcap trip, <laughs> or should we? Let's, you know, I, okay we'll we'll start with where your passion for investing began, and then we 'll give the people what they want so you know where did your passion for investing in microcaps uh, begin
1: my My passion for investing um, I guess I would explain the passion side of it as just loving games. Um, ever since I was a kid, I really loved games, and um, a lot of a lot of microcap investors probably have nerdy backgrounds in high school. I was this kid who actually played competitive uh, games. I would go to like board game conferences. Literally they exist. Um, I even played some of these really nerdy tabletop miniatures games. I love that stuff. Um, I was really into that stuff. I loved entrepreneurial um, ventures. I mean, I didn't have a lot of businesses, but I was like, I was uh, shoveling or snowballing people's driveways in the winter time. I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I had a, an eBay business. I was buying and reselling stuff that I found at garage sales on eBay. Um, That was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, so once I ended up learning about the existence of the stock market, and I started learning about um, the fact that it's about businesses, and um, it's this game you can play basically to make money, um, it just naturally drew me to it. And um, I've tried to just refine my uh, technique over the last uh, 10, 15 years.
0: Very cool. So going back to your professional gaming uh, background, I, I have that. <laughs> oh like, boy, I have to ask about that because I okay. see me and my friends think we're like nut jobs about like playing board games and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And that, like, you know, I remember the first time. You know, it was the first time my wife played Monopoly with us, and she's like, "This is how you play Monopoly? Are you nuts? Like that? This is not." But so, like, what games were? They? It was Monopoly, Risk, like, or just oh, everything. man.
1: So I, I, okay, so when I was in middle school, me and my friends would go on Friday afternoons after school to the local comic book shop, and we played Settlers of Catan, which is where we learned how to play it. We were like 12 years old. I mean, this was, this was like 18 years ago, man. Um, and it was not mainstream then, you know, you, you wouldn't have that no. in a Barnes and Noble, right? To buy a, a copy of Settlers. Um, I played Magic the Gathering. Um, that was big, big in, in middle school. In high school, I was also really into this uh, miniatures game that was so much fun. I think it's kind of fallen out of popularity, so I I I doubt if there's people playing it. it.
0: It's called miniatures.
1: Okay, no, 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 no. So there are different kinds of games with these little figurines that you play on a a board, like tabletop. And um, the one I was really into was called Hero Clicks, and this was literally superhero figures that each had their own stats, and you had to assemble a team of them and you basically just did battles against the other person who had their own team. You collected this stuff. It was addictive. I think I probably spent most of my allowance money and a lot of my other business venture money as a kid on these games. And, uh, I mean, I, I have to, I have to give a shout out to, uh, my mom for driving me around to go to these, uh, tournaments and play this stuff just for fun. Um, I, I wouldn't have been able to, uh, experience the, the passion of playing games as much without uh you know uh <laughs> some transportation at the time i'm, sh-
0: I'm <laughs> sure she had no problem she's like oh you want to one you're passionate too you want to go to this tur- you're not you don't want me to take to these crazy parties right it's like well no problem
1: she, at the at, at that point she was sort of interested in getting me to the parties a little bit but uh yeah <laughs> I, I i i had very supportive parents who um I still have very supportive parents who are Um, willing to let me, uh, without judgment, pursue um, sort of unconventional uh, interests, including when becoming a full-time investor. I think a lot of people would have a lot of pushback from their families when they decide to make that jump. And um, I am very lucky that my parents were very understanding of how I wanted to approach it. So it was an easy thing.
0: So so how did so then how did you you know you you discovered investing you discovered there's this there, there's these games that I can play and make money via the stock market you know what then led you to to micro caps?
1: Um, well, I've said before that I think the best games to play are games you can win, and uh, when it comes to investing, you want to play the easiest game as possible because you're gonna. I mean, m- all money's green whether it comes from or. American money, Um, whether it comes from uh, a large cap or a micro cap or a piece of real estate or or what have you. So I think uh, history and studies have shown that micro caps are the most inefficient market of the public stock market. So uh, if you have a small capital base and you can reasonably expect to deploy it in those small companies, I think you'd be doing yourself a disservice to not focus on micro
0: caps. Very cool. So then, and then catch us up, you know, again, before my last question on background, and then we'll dip into the, the micro cap, crazy fun stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, so then what, how'd you get your start? And then what, when, when were you able to make that jump to full-time investor? Cause uh, Hey, by 30 years old, being a full-time investor in micro caps, like that's, that's no easy feat.
1: Uh, yeah. So I used to work at uh, a hedge fund. I was there for about a little over four years. And um, before that, I worked for one year at BlackRock after college. Um, I was interested in investing when I was in college. I was investing in my own account at the time. I founded, I co-founded and co-ran the investing club at my college. And um, the whole time, I was really just interested in um, learning as much as I could. So obviously, I read a lot of books. Um, everyone at this point has probably gone through um, the basics like intelligent investor, security analysis, uh, you can be a stock market genius, all that stuff. They're great books. Um, and I got some hands-on experience working at a fund. It wasn't a lot of microcaps because it was a larger fund, but I got a lot of hands-on experience that I think was very useful. And at the time, I was very focused on eventually leaving to start being a full-time investor. And so I was just building up my savings. And when I hit the amount that I was targeting, then I was able to make the jump and. Um, it was sort of a matter of weighing the risks and the uh, reward I guess of making that jump. so I think a lot of people wonder, well, what what level of security do you have to have in order to uh, make a bet on yourself that you can earn returns in the stock market to support yourself and it's a very different calculation when I mean at the time I was 26 twenty seven years old and I was leaving and uh, I have no family. I have no kids, so um, I don't have to worry about the downside of not being able to support um, that infrastructure. So um, for me, the downside was that if it didn't work out and um, I had to go back to finding a source of income, I could do it, and I wasn't really too concerned about that. So um, it was a successful bet, I'd say, at this point because I've had about three and a half, almost four years now of uh, full-time investing experience and. Uh, the returns have been very good. So, um, ex post, it was a good decision. I'd I'd say it was still it it was a good decision in the moment, and it played out.
0: Very cool. All right. So then, also briefly, you know, what 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 would you say then are are now some of your criteria when you're looking for potential microcap investment?
1: Um, I'm one of the guys, maybe sort of a dying group, (laughs) who's very very focused on uh, profitability which is almost, it's almost sort of silly because it seems so simple, right? Of course, you'd want to invest in profitable companies. But if you look at typical microcap portfolios, just because there are so few profitable microcaps, uh, it's hard to fill a portfolio with profitable microcaps. I think, so, so I actually have historically invested in a mix of profitable companies and companies that are uh, either near profitability or growing very quickly, so they could reach profitability in uh, time frame of a couple of years. But I actually did this uh, a little bit of a, a back test, or I should say not a back test, but I, I went and reviewed all of my past investment decisions. I did this exercise um, after a string of losing money in a couple of unprofitable companies a few years ago. And I realized after going back through all my historical investment decisions and the results of them that... I was just not doing very well investing in companies that were not yet profitable. And I don't know if it's, um, just the overall statistics that unprofitable companies, um, I mean, I would, I would make a educated guess that it's true that unprofitable companies typically are not as good investments, but, uh, Or it could have just been my own temperament, is that I was not able to select the right unprofitable businesses that had the growth trajectory to be successful investments. So uh, in the last few years, I have increasingly basically limited myself to profitable businesses. And I'm, I'm not saying that I'll never make an investment in a company that's not profitable, but it's, in my opinion, the surest way to reduce the risk of an investment is to invest in a company that has a proven business model, which is shown by its historical profitability.
0: So what was it about some of the unprofitable companies that, you know, you feel that you made the wrong bet on them? I mean, was it something having to do with those companies in particular? Or were you just like, you know, I'm just, I'm, my, my approach to looking at them is wrong. You know, what, what was it?
1: Uh, well, <laughs> the most obvious thing is that I lost money on the stocks. Um, when, when, it, when it comes to the companies themselves, I would say that I'm probably not at a, a significant advantage relative to other investors when it comes to um, projecting growth rates for high growth companies or companies that expect to be high growth. I do think that over the years, I've become a little bit better at understanding business models. And competitive positions, but it's still hard to do. And when you have companies that are pretty early in the growth trajectory, and so much of the so much of the expectation is that they'll sustain some growth rate or accelerate some growth rate into three, five plus years out, um, I just haven't historically managed to make smart bets doing that. Um, and it's probably a lot of it is just it's just me. I'm sure there are a lot of venture capitalists, especially who are really great at doing that, or at least they do it enough and they can have a good enough hit rate that it works out. And, uh, I, I haven't made it work. I haven't been able to make it work.
0: <laughs> no worries. Listen, you figured out, you figured out where where you do make it work. Right. So at the, at the end of the day, like you don't, if there's one thing I've learned from doing this podcast from everybody on here has been successful to one degree or another, and it's because they figured out what they're good at. Right
1: So yeah. yeah. and and to be honest, I, I hadn't lost money in all the unprofitable investments, but as a group, taken together, they had underperformed the investments that I made in profitable companies. So if I know that my my batting average and my uh, my long-term uh, investment returns have been much better in this easy to define group relative to this other group that's outside of the first one, why would, I, why would I ever go back to that group again? So right. it was just simple calculation.
0: Absolutely. All right. So, you know, look, we've, we've, we've run across each other. We never actually met in person at any of these events that, that happen all the time. But like, when, when did you start going to some of these microcap events and realize that you needed to go meet management and see the presentations, you know, and realize that that was available to you uh, out, out there?
1: Yeah, I think... It's actually a little tricky uh i think i didn't go to any conferences until after college uh so when i was so when i was working at blackrock which was my first year out of college i believe at that point i began to go to a couple of the microcap conferences that were held in new york city because that's where i was working and i would have to request vacation time to do that because it wasn't actually for my job so And you'll really know who's committed to investing when they take a vacation to go research investments. (laughs) But I did some of those. And uh, I I did also some more of that when I was working at the hedge fund, because I would also take vacation time to research some uh, microcap investments. But I didn't do much of it because I wasn't able to invest my own portfolio much when I was at the hedge fund. But I also did it to just keep in touch with other um, people I liked, other microcap investors. Um, And when I first started, it was definitely intimidating because when you're 20 or 21 years old and you truly don't know what you're doing and you know you don't know what you're doing um, and you suspect that everyone else knows that as well, you're just trying not to make a fool of yourself uh, and also hopefully learn as much as possible. So. I think I would say that I was very happy to have started going to invest, going to investment conferences at that time. Um, you know, mind you, I also ended up going to a lot of investment conferences professionally through my job at the hedge fund, but that wasn't for microcaps. Uh, so eventually, you go to enough of them, and <laughs> by the time you're at your uh, your twentieth or thirtieth investment conference. You sort of you, you don't you don't bring the suit jacket anymore you you don't always have <laughs> <Yeah>. the same <laughs> level of uh, of respect to all the executives that you might have shown when you, when you were 20 or 21 years old <laughs> I literally was just gonna,
0: I was just gonna ask you like at what number conference did you realize like after hearing all the pitches we were like wow that's it's amazing like I can't believe like they're gonna be doing they're gonna do all this and so, at what point at what at what number event were you finally like Okay. Like, I'm, I'm for <laughs> um, sure, dude.
1: I, I think I think it happened pretty early because I, I had I had a sense that a lot of these companies were really, really fly by night operations and um you didn't really you couldn't really trust what people were saying, but it, it took a it took a while to be able to express that openly to other people. I mean, I, I would I still wouldn't just say to an executive to their face, I think. This is nonsense. I think your business model is is just made up and a piece of shit. but uh, I will be much more critical. And if an executive says that they expect to hit some target and I think that target makes no sense, I will actually push on it much harder now in person than I would have when I first started. I probably would have just gone back home and thought to myself, that made no sense. And at this point it doesn't bother me so much to bring it up. And, and really, if they want to, if they want to argue it, then I'll let them argue it with me and just see what they think.
0: Awesome. All right. So I got to ask some, I'm sure you got some great anecdotes. I mean, we all have some crazy anecdotes on some of these presentations and things that you've seen or heard. And what, I mean, you know, this is story time. I mean, what, what, what are some of the, the craziest stuff that you heard and saw? Cause I, I know you've done a ton of these, not just one-on-ones, but you've seen these presentations, some of the things that are said.
1: Man, it's uh, it's hard <laughs> to say individual names, not because I have a problem bringing up individual names. Oh, no, just, no, no, Let's, we don't even have to name the individual yeah, names. I, but like I, just I can't even remember some of these companies because I think the ones that really get to me are where the CEO is a visionary and they're just they're just out of their mind. They just don't have a firm grasp in reality. And a lot of these people are very convincing because they're true believers in what they're saying. Um, and when you talk to them, some people, I mean, some investors get swept up in some of what these guys would say. I mean, people, anyone who would say we're going to change the world, I would just kind of run in the opposite direction. Not, not because there aren't any, there, there are going to be people who will change the world, but I suspect that a lot of them are going to be people who don't make that claim, right? If you just grind it out as, a as a successful business, and you keep growing and growing and growing, eventually you might change the world. Um, if you've got some new technology that uh, I don't know, it's going to revolutionize water, or it's going to uh, it's going to extend everyone's life, or it, something something that's really really a huge goal. Um, those are the ones where I just want to walk out. Uh, I do. I mean, I've met with CEOs who have been convicted for fraud before. Uh, I haven't always known that at the time when I was sitting down to meet with them. And I will always, when I have met with those guys, I've always gotten such a weird vibe that I'll immediately know that something's wrong. And then I'll go back to my computer and I'll Google it. And I'll realize that that person had previously been <laughs> convicted for fraud, or at least heavily suspected of fraud. Um, those are always really weird. Um, it's also really weird when you know a person is lying to you in general, and you're sitting with them in them. You're sitting with them in a professional context, and you're both wearing business attire, and they're just lying to you. And it feels strange because it feels like when you put on a suit, it's sort of it's sort of saying to people that you're a serious person who should be taken seriously. And I, I, I <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's why I don't feel like I, I should wear suits around all these people anymore. <laughs> and look
0: to, to be fair the reason i wanted to go down this road and talk to you about this is because i when when we're talking about micro caps it's so crucial and it's also part of the inefficiency and part of your advantage in a micro cap investor is talking about yeah. management and being able to have access to them and you know as someone who's been in the in the trenches seeing that yeah. i mean it's it's important to get all of this out there because well, there's folks that are listening to this that yeah don't you know they can I, I easily can, get get
1: sold i can give you a couple of good stories though so um I actually have had some very positive experiences with management teams um, in the past. And some of that has just been from primary research, not at conferences. Uh, so one of the investments that I made uh, when I was first starting out, this was 2012, 2013. And at the time, it was my biggest investment was in this little company called Coda Octopus, which now is ticker symbol CODA. I believe at the time it was uh, C-D-O-C. And at the time, it was a 10 10 or so million market cap company. Um, I really, really liked the valuation because it was at something like 10 million market cap and it was doing five or so million of profitability. It makes um, specialty underwater radar uh, sonar sensors. And there was really not research on the company. Uh, So what I did in that case was I saw that they were going to be hosting a a demonstration day at their offices outside of Tampa for their customers and prospective customers. And uh, I took a vacation to go down to Tampa to attend that demonstration day in 2013. And that gave me more confidence to increasingly scale up my position, which was already quite large. Um, But it was so cool when you're, I think I was 22 and I was down there at this event and it was maybe 10 middle-aged white guys and me. And I, on one side was like a Halliburton guy. On the other side was, uh, I don't know, I think an Oceaneering guy. It's a robotics company. Um, and they're all customers or prospective customers or distributors. And um, they looked at me and they were like, what are you, who are you? What are you doing here? Because I had asked the company in advance, obviously, that I could come down to the tent. And they said it was fine but I was the only investor in attendance. And when I told them that I was an investor, they thought I must be a private equity investor because none of them knew that the company was publicly traded. And we went out on a boat that day on the Harbor and they demonstrated the performance of the, of the sonar underwater. It's very cool. Actually, if you ever are interested, you can go check it out. It basically gives you a real time 3d underwater picture. It's very, very interesting, kind of unique, but, uh, The funny thing was that after that demonstration day, I think the next month, month and a half, the stock must have at least doubled. And I wonder if it was because a couple of those guys I talked to (laughs) down in Tampa had gone back to to their brokerage accounts and immediately tried to buy as many shares as they could. But uh, I, I still to this day don't. And I don't know. Um, And also at the time, um, there were a couple other guys who I knew, um, one of whom was uh, Connor, Connor Haley, who was actually looking at the stock at the time when we talked about it, um, who might've also been responsible for um, getting some more traction to the name. Uh, So that was an interesting story. And just generally, when you go to annual meetings of companies that are off the beaten path, you can experience some interesting on the ground research. And when when you see a company's offices I mean, I don't know if I can keep going here, but uh, I, I, so I uh, went to go, I went to Winnipeg when I was researching the uh, investment I made in FP newspapers, which is a Canadian company. It's basically the Winnipeg main newspaper um, called the Winnipeg Free Press. So I went to their annual meeting uh, a couple of years ago and I, again, I think I was the only person in attendance from outside of Winnipeg. Let alone the States. I think I was the only one who actually came out of town. I did wear a suit. And I think I was the only one in the attendance wearing a suit. But there were a lot of locals there. And um, this was another situation where everyone was kind of speculating that I was some big shot banker, because why else was there some New Yorker in a suit who came to this meeting? And there were locals there who were asking. Some of them, honestly, were just not, most of them were not sophisticated investors at all. But some of the questions, I mean, one guy he was peppering management with questions like, why is the logo on the coffee mugs that you guys use for promotional material, why is the logo so small? And he would just ask the, and there were other people asking questions that were of similar, of a similar ilk. And I just couldn't, it was just painful being there as an investor and feeling like these poor guys, the CEO, CFO, have to be answering these questions. It's only one day a year, I suppose. But then you go and you tour the facility and it's very cool. And uh, you can see this is, in fact, a real thing that I've invested in. It's not just a 10 cent stock on a screen that may or may not really exist (laughs) in real life.
0: No, 100 percent. But real quick, are you still a shareholder in either FP or uh, Coda? Apologies.
1: So, uh, no, I'm no longer a shareholder in Coda Octopus and I am a shareholder in FP newspapers. Thank you.
0: Very cool. Yeah, no worries. I mean, you know, one one cool thing is, um, is talking about differential insights, right? I, I had Paul Luncis on the show, you know, a while back and and he we really got into it. And if there's one space where you can really get that, it it, it is in micro and nano caps. You know, management teams want investors to come up and see the offices, see the operations. And sometimes it's the ones that don't. They're like, OK, there we go. That's a that's an indicator right there. Um, yeah, <laughs> in many ways. I mean, so I mean, do do you have any other uh, both? Oh my positive god! stuff? Like, this is great. I, I love yeah. this stuff.
1: I love looking for differentiated data sets. I just love it. It's like my favorite. My favorite thing is when you can find a truly differentiated data set about a company. The first time that happened to me was when I was a summer intern in 2010 at this equity research firm. I was trading my own account at the time outside of work. And at the time, I got really fascinated by the company Sotheby's, which runs the art auctions. I can't exactly explain why. I ended, up, I ended up actually being interested in the art market. And I did my senior thesis in college on the art market. But at the time, I didn't really have a good reason, I think, for being interested in it, besides the fact that it was beaten down in the financial crisis. And this was 2010. So it was starting to come back as, as the art market was coming back.
0: Did, did you predict NFTs during that thesis at, at the time as well? Or... <laughs> oh, my
1: God. So I, I don't think I can even predict. I couldn't have predicted that a year ago. No, so A week ago, (laughs) ago, what I did, which was, I think, so great and so much fun was uh, I realized that Sotheby's, and I don't know if this is true anymore, and they're not even public anymore. They were taken private many years later, but they posted all of their auction results on their website after an auction was complete. So you could actually go and see this painting sold for this much money, this vase sold for this much money, yada, yada, yada. And they only hosted a few auctions every quarter. And they would be big events that would sell many, many, many millions of dollars worth of art per auction. And Sotheby's has a pretty simple business model. Most of their revenue just comes from commissions on auction sales. So it'll take 18% or 20% commission on everything that gets sold. And there's a sliding scale based on how expensive something is. But what I figured out you could do is just go to their website, download all of the actual auction results, and then just figure out how much commission they made on every single thing they sold. And if you added it up, you would actually get pretty much their whole revenue for the quarter, which was weird because from what I could tell, no sell-side analysts were doing that. And I basically just figured out that they were gonna shoot the lights out. And I figured out that their quarter, I don't know if it was the Q2 2010 quarter, it probably was either Q2 or Q3 2010, was going to be a blowout quarter. And I knew what the sell set expectations were. Um, and it was. And it, the stock was rocketing up that whole time as people kind of figured it out. And it was so weird because I thought this was way too easy, right? This didn't make sense. It was so simple. And I realized that there are just lots of situations like that. And, and Sotheby's this is not a tiny company. It must have had at least a billion market cap at the time. Um, my favorite one in the last few years with differentiated insights, which is also, I think, one of my more, more painful stories over the last few years was uh, Collector's Universe. And I'm sure you've heard and followed that oh, saga. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, um, so I, was, I got interested in Collector's Universe early 2020, uh, like January. And I had followed the company kind of on and off looking at it For a while, I mean, this was a really, it was a profitable company. It paid huge dividends for a long time, but it really didn't have the growth. And I saw that in late 2019, especially, I mean, especially late 2019, but already coming into 2019, even 2018, the card division, and this is a company that does authentication and grading services for collectible cards and coins. The card division, which had always been much smaller than the coin division, was really ramping up. And almost no one seemed to be talking about it or noticing it. They had no sell side coverage. And on Seeking Alpha, almost no one seemed to be realizing this was happening either. In fact, the narrative there was that people were concerned that there was um, a card grading scandal where some unscrupulous people had been trimming the corners off, trimming the sides off of trading cards to make them look like they were in better condition. Anyway, people didn't realize what was going on. And when you did a little bit of research, you could actually figure out that the card market had been coming back into the public, public um, consciousness or what, what have you. I mean, it was actually becoming popular again. And it was so weird to me that this was being so underappreciated. So, um, I, so I, I bought some of the stock and I was doing research and I realized that you could um, basically figure out how many cards their company was grading because they had a website that listed In aggregated form, also to make it easier, every single card that they had graded historically, of you could you could see, for example, a Michael Jordan card from this set in this condition. There had been X many of these cards graded by this company. So they didn't give you the day to day, and they also didn't provide that information to investors in a public setting most of the time. But you could figure out by getting that data from their website every day, you could see how many cards they graded every single day. And it just required a little bit of elbow grease. Um, and I'm pretty sure if I was better at computers, I could have done it with a macro, but I- I'm not. So I ended up getting this data set. And while people were trying to figure out what was happening at the company, I knew how many cards they graded every single day. And um, at the time, I also, so I ended up pinging my buddy, Connor. Um, I ended up talking to one or two other people about it as well. Um, and I told Connor, this is up your alley. You got to look at this thing. So I didn't really know what he was going to do with it at the time, but he basically fell in love with this idea and really ran with it. And a few months later, I was looking at filings from Connor saying that he wanted to you know, like replace the board. And um, unfortunately, that was a situation where because so few people had the same differentiated information that I had, they didn't realize what was happening as it accelerated. And I think one lesson that I learned from that, so what happened in the situation was that the company was acquired and there were some, um, I'd say, less than above board tactics used by the acquirers in that process. And I'm sure Connor can rant about that if you ask him about it as well. But a lot of that came down to the fact that the people who were really bullish on the name had better data and they understood what was happening. And the people who didn't have that data were likely to undercreate the growth prospect and the acceleration of it and sell out at a lower price. So, by keeping that information kind of close to the chest, which I did because I thought of it as a competitive advantage that I had that data, um, I shared it with a few people, but not the public. Um, I think that was sort of at ex post, that was doing a disservice to myself and to all other investors in the company. And maybe if I had shared that information earlier, I, it, it could have gotten more people more excited about, this, about what was actually happening at the company. And maybe that could have prevented uh, the takeover at what we consider to be an unfair price. And if you look at what the company's disclosed publicly since then, they've, they've doubled all of the pricing for card grading. I think they've taken the rate of card grading up two or three X in the last nine months, which was already apparent. And from some of the data before they actually closed the deal. Um, and, uh, I'm sure they're making out like bandits on it right now. So, um, a little bit of a harsh lesson, but, um, it was still at the time, um, I think really fun.
0: Let me ask you this. I mean, in, using that example, I mean, what was some of your reasonings to not share that, you know, that were are we still building position Were you kind of, you're nervous, like you're going to run it up and you still didn't build out the full position. Like what, what was some of your reasons? Most would say it's a team sport, but you know, there's reasons why you might not make something like that public.
1: What, to be honest, what I was thinking was that if something changed in the data, I wanted to be able to react to it. If it accelerated, I wanted to be able to increase my position first. If it decelerated, I wanted to be able to reduce the position size first. Uh, I did share it with some people because I have friends who are in the stock who I know well, and we share information and they were appreciative of it. And I'm happy to share with my friends, but it's tough sometimes when you feel like you have a competitive edge, you don't necessarily want to give that away for free because that's your edge, right? But at the same time, you have some weird situations like this, and I didn't really expect it to play out like that in which case having in which case giving away the edge would have actually been a better outcome for yourself and for everyone else
0: so for for the next potential idea that comes through where you were able to find this differential insight based on public information oh yeah i want, was, I want that to be public. clear as yeah. well like this is yeah. all public information you were just able to yeah. discern from yeah. that a competitive edge, you know, so I want to make make sure that's clear, you know, but like for the next time that does happen, you know, what, what, what do you feel like you would want to do? Do you feel like you'd want to make that more public or do you feel it, or is it just a case by case basis?
1: It's so hard to say. I think at this point, I'd say it would still have to be a case by case basis. And certainly if I'm accumulating a position still, I'm not going to be interested in doing that. Uh, If I've, if I've established a full position, and at that point, I think other people should understand what's going on, uh, then sure, as part of making that pitch, it might make sense to explain everything that you're using as part of your data set.
0: So, you know, this is also a great learning lesson for those that you know, our because we I was just um, we were just at the Microcap Club uh, Summit, the virtual one yesterday, and during the vir- and during the virtual happy hour, you know, it, it was interesting to hear um, how. Um, well, firstly, there's so many new folks that are into microcaps, which is awesome. Some of them probably are listening right now that that said they listen to the show. So, you know, for those, thank you. But. You know, maybe we can go a little deeper into finding some of these differentiated insights and where you go to actually look for that. And what maybe some of the clues that you see when you're doing your deep dive due diligence, like, oh, that I want to do, I want to look into that a little bit deeper because I think that might help me with my edge.
1: Sure. I think the simplest thing that anyone can and should do is figure out how much you can get Publicly, even if it costs you a little bit of money and even if it costs you a little bit of your time and effort. So, when I say that, I mean if it's the simple version of this is something like if you invest in Google, you should have used their search engine and understand their product. Same thing if you invest in Apple or Amazon, and those are probably very understandable for people. But if you invest in a company that Let's say they, uh, well, if you invest in a newspaper like the Winnipeg Free Press, the FP newspapers investment, it would probably help you at some point in your investment process if you subscribe to that newspaper, because that will give you a sense of what their product actually is. And who knows, there might be interesting insights you can glean, whether it's uh, announcements in the newspaper about changes to their operations, which happen on occasion or uh viewing what their advertisement base looks like so that sort of thing is possible sometimes it's not possible if you invest in a heavy industrial company most likely you're not going to go and uh use some giant i don't know steel stamp press at some factory to figure out if they actually manufacture good stamp presses but uh To the extent that you can, I think it makes sense to do it. Uh, That also applies to things like industry trade magazines. Um, I've definitely learned things from looking at trade publications and some of those just cost a couple hundred dollars for a subscription, uh, which you can cancel at any time you'd like. Um, Going to industry conferences can help. Um, If you're located in New York City, which I was for many years, it's actually shockingly convenient uh, to go to attend some of these things. And it's very cool when you get to see a company at their booth at a trade fair, as opposed to at the table at a uh, in, at an investment conference. And you'll also most likely run into their some of their customers, some of their competitors. Uh, you'll see a lot. So um, those can just be very interesting. And I mean, I, I don't know, uh, a couple of years ago, I went to uh, a security industry trade fair in New York City. It was at the Javits Center. And I must have visited with at least five or six different publicly traded companies at their booths. Um, That included everything from, uh, what was it? Like, I think Napco, which, and I don't own any of these stocks, but um, Napco, which makes uh, uh, fire alarm related technologies, Uh, George Risk, which is a, Interesting little tiny microcap nanocap family-controlled business uh, which makes pool alarms. There were some bigger companies there. Uh, there were, there was a, a company that manufactures uh, surveillance systems that I was interested at the time. Um, so it was just interesting being there, and it wasn't so expensive. I think I probably spent fifty bucks maybe, and it just took a day or a morning. Uh, and I love doing that stuff. I, if I could do that every day to the extent that my schedule allows it, I, I would do it.
0: How, how has that process changed now? You know, in COVID time, I mean, things are starting to open up a little bit, but I mean, in the last 18 months, like what, you weren't just sitting on your hands, not looking at potential new ideas or checking <laughs> in on other ones. Right. So like, uh-huh. how, how were you able to adjust some of what you, your normal process? Was? Yeah.
1: So, uh, so it's actually gotten, uh, it's very, it's very different. In some ways, it's easier because a lot of companies have made the effort to put things online so everyone can do the same conference online instead of having to be there in person. But yeah, not being able to go to conferences for uh, industry conferences, that's a little different. Uh, Just if you're wary of traveling than going to an annual meeting that's being held in person, obviously, that's going to be a challenge. Uh, It just makes you change a little bit. I mean, look, when I was uh, investing in... Collector's Universe, I was actually not even in the United States for almost that entire time. I, long story, but I happened to be trying out uh, a remote working uh, group trip. And I started that trip just before COVID hit, beginning of 2020. I was in Vietnam for almost all of last year. And I couldn't really awesome. experience. I mean, I would have liked to have sent away some cards to be graded by Collector's Universe. Um, I was very wary of sending them from Saigon and getting them back. Uh, (laughs) But uh, you just adapt, you, you, you change, you change your operating processes. And to be honest, a lot of being a good investor is the ability to be flexible and to change. And if you have a cookie cutter process, then you're not going to be able to change. And when there is a differentiated insight, you might not find it because most companies have their own little idiosyncrasies and there are some companies that will lend themselves to some kind of analysis and there are other companies that will lend themselves to a completely different analysis or some companies that really won't make it easy to do any analysis at all. So you have to be willing to flow and find where the cracks are, I'd say. Very good.
0: All right. So I I wanted to, uh, you know, obviously the main way that, that most folks interact with you is via Twitter. I mean, I know you're on a two week break right now. We're recording this on <laughs> September 24th. So yes. yeah, I, know, I know you're on a little break right now. I I, I was too proud.
1: addicted to Twitter.
0: <laughs> Dude, I, I was, I was literally talking to my wife about it last night where I was like, I just, I feel like I, like my mind was, was a little sharper, maybe like a week, like a couple months ago, but then I got back on, I was really, really, I was more active than I usually am on social media. So like, I totally relate to exactly what you're, you know, t- I'm, I should probably take a little break. Well, I can only really do the weekends. I'm in media, so it's not like I can't, but like, you know, anyways, long story short, um, it, you know, you talk about a few of your names on there. Actually, I don't, I'm not sure if you're a shareholder of those names, but you talk about a few of those names on there, you know, um, first question is, you know, what, what drives you to want to then talk about some of the names that you're interested in on, on your Twitter account a little bit, and then also, you know, I mean, you've talked you talked about some cult names that we've known for years. Uh, you know, of late, very recently. You know, from Galaxy Gaming to Fit Life. You know, so you know, love to hear some of your thought process around wanting to engage in the conversation on some of these ideas, and then in particular, some of those cult names. Full disclosure: not a shareholder of either of those.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. So. The most obvious reason for talking about an individual stock that you own is to find other people to invest in it and hopefully get the stock to rate re-rate to a fair price, which would accelerate the process of making money on it. So I am, I am unashamedly interested in doing that. I think there's a way to do that. That's not uh, unethical or what they, people call as, as pumping a stock. But if almost no one's ever heard of a company before, and to explain the value proposition and why it's an interesting investment, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and i I think the other reason, which might actually end up being more important in the long run, is you meet people. And I can't tell you how many of my current uh, investor, investment friends and investment relationships that I've had, I would have had without being public in some way or another, whether it was on MicroCap Club or on Twitter. And uh, just having that network is so valuable. Um, when it comes to those names, I mean, so I'm a shareholder of Galaxy, Galaxy Gaming. Um, I'm also a shareholder of uh, Life, And when I, I mean, I only found these names and many other names that I've invested in uh through other investors who I've been close with over the years. Um I've mentioned in the past uh Jason Hirschman is one of my uh, favorite investment friends and one of the smartest most successful guys out there. We love we love Jason. We love you Jason. And he's <laughs> he's been very public about Galaxy for a long time and uh and sure I had been aware of the company um going back many years prior to that as well but not really I didn't really understand the company's product offering and when someone can lay it out for you, it makes it so much more possible to get the conviction to own it. Um, So I I'd say I'm a very, I'm very happy to be public about a lot of what I do. There are times when I will not talk about something publicly when I'm trying to buy a stock and it's really illiquid. It just doesn't help to, to point your finger at it as soon as you first find it. And I understand it's, it's not, it's, it's not the way to get everyone else uh, inter, in, into it at the best price. But at the end of the day, you're trying to make good investments. And I've had, I've had companies where it might only, a stock might only trade once a week or less than once a week, and uh, it could take a long time to build up a position. So uh, there are always going to be some situations like that, but the vast majority of my holdings I have been public on on Twitter. So um, I don't want to give the wrong impression that I'm mostly secret about stuff. I'm, the, the norm is that I'm public about what I own.
0: And you know what, I, and, I, and I think it goes back to the age old lesson of just like, especially in the investment community, you know, and, and some of these investment groups, you know, like microcap club and, and others is that, you know, if you give a little, you're going to get a lot of return right? You know, you give a little bit of insight onto what you're looking at and why you think it's interesting, whether you're right or wrong, it doesn't matter. It's the fact that you're willing to give a little bit and who knows, you never know what can come out of that. You know, you might find others that agree with you. You find others that disagree. And both of that can be extremely helpful. And this is mostly a message to new microcap investors, right? That might not maybe be active on FinTwit or any of these other platforms that like, you know, it can be a really beneficial thing for you to grow as an investor is, Getting, you know, not just staying in your own bubble and staying in your own cocoon to say, you know, pat yourself on the back like, you know, I think I'm right, I think I'm right. And then, you know, you never know, you might be extremely wrong.
1: Yeah. I will say I have received men since I've been on Twitter and since I've gotten some more of a following on Twitter, I've had many people reach out to me, messaging me uh, with investment ideas. And most of those people are relatively inexperienced, although there are some who are pretty experienced investors. Um, and a lot of them just want to get feedback. And to, for the most part, I'm very happy to do that. Um, some of it's self-serving because if they have a great idea, I'm thrilled that they're pitching me at, pitching it to me early. But um, I'm happy to give feedback. And, and look, a lot of it is pretty straightforward stuff. I mean, a lot of the companies that people pitch to me, I've actually researched them before. <laughs> so I can usually give I mean, maybe not usually, but very often I can give people a pretty, pretty good piece of feedback about you know, why I don't own that company, why I don't own that stock. Uh, but I love to learn. And um, there are always situations that uh, there are often situations where people will pitch it to me. And even if I still don't really like it as an investment, I still learn something. And it's great to learn some,
0: something new. Absolutely. So, and by the way, people aren't just in you to, to be on podcast, you know, they're also in you have to be on podcast too, right? I mean, the, the case, case in point right here. Uh, <laughs> gotta love that. Um, yeah. So actually going back down uh, another rabbit hole that I want to, you know, speaking of Collector's Universe and and uh, Active's campaign on that one, you know, but using that kind of as a framework, um, you know, you've started to see, we both started to see that it feels like there's this kind of new age of activism maybe it might not be new age and maybe just by new age i mean you know we're just seeing younger folks now being more doing, doing more activist campaigns and microcaps but you know what what have you observed what have you seen i mean it's clearly gotten easier for you know the the retail investor to start you know wanting to see more change in the companies especially in microcaps that they're invested in
1: yeah i would say that it seems to be going hand in hand with the overall um, abandonment by institutions of the microcap space. I mean, you've seen what's been happening with the OTC markets over the last year or two. And there's this, there's this shift increasingly that um, regulators have taken to basically protect investors from themselves by placing more and more Small microcap stocks off limits if they don't meet disclosure requirements, for example. Um, but for forever, I, I, for a very long time, these companies have not really fit in any meaningful way in, into the institutional framework. It's not profitable for a bank to establish coverage on a company that does not need to raise a lot of equity um, because it's profitable. And does not have a lot of trading volume or liquidity. There's just no business model there for institutions, specifically the sell side, um, and to a lesser extent the buy side, to do anything with it. And I've experienced this firsthand when I first started learning about microcap investing. When I would talk to some sell side guys I would meet at conferences, I would always be interested in whether they would look at a company for the sake of eventually picking up coverage of an underfollowed name. But the fact is, they just don't do it. It doesn't make sense for them as a business model. So when you have that structure, the only companies that do eventually get coverage in this space are the ones that need to raise a lot of equity or other financing, um, which typically means that it's the lower quality businesses that end up having some following institutionally. And the higher quality businesses have just fallen through this crack and a lot of people know that this exists, that this, this blank space in the market exists for tiny, high-quality businesses that don't need to raise capital. Um, but most people also don't have any interest in it because it's not a place where buy-side firms can invest a lot of money. So it's really just filtered down to people like you and me who have to run with this and carry the torch for it and be digging through the weeds or the garbage heap, whatever we want to call it. And some of those people um, have enough capital and they've built up enough of a, a reputation that they've now been able to seriously consider making some changes at a company that isn't performing the way they think it could perform and that it should perform. So it's, it's this weird environment where the only reason that it exists in the form that there is now some activist investors in the nanocap space is because no one else is no one else is there. So they've just come in because there's this void. And I think it's interesting if that's going to progress to these same people working on larger activist campaigns, or if there's going to be more people who come in to do the same kind of work in this space. Um, To be honest, it's not a very big space. There's not that much money right now to be made in it. It's just... um, there aren't that many people going after it and we'll see how the next few years play out. So, um, I think it's interesting. Um, I wouldn't say it's part of some huge trend, but, uh, I I think there's some money to be made. Yeah.
0: A hundred percent. And also you got to look at the incentives, right? You know, if you're talking about some of these institutions that manage, you know, they have a a solid amount of, of AUM, they're thinking to themselves, man, activist campaigns, like that's a lot of friggin' work. Like, you know, what is my eventual payout if we really are going to put in the time, effort and resources to do that? Whereas for, you know, a lot of retail investors that I've spoken to in the last year or so that have been starting wanting to be more active. You can see that that there is a lot more incentive for them because that that might be their largest holding. Yep. Yep you know? And, and, and it just makes more sense where, you know, their, their expenditure on the differential insights is because they've already seen what, what the, what what the value gap is and why there's, why there should, this thing should be worth more. And they're willing to put that money to work, to invest, to make sure that it gets there. And this is the way that they can do it.
1: Yeah. um, I'd agree with most of that. I, I would add one additional thing, which is that I think it would be interesting to see how this plays out domestically versus internationally, because um, as a lot of people know, the United States has not been a very good environment for activism, specifically when it comes to um, you know, hostile takeovers and that sort of thing. Um, since the game game was based, the rules of the game basically changed back in like the '80s with the poison pill. Um, but there are a lot of other markets now that a lot of small microcap investors look at. And I think many of those markets are more hospitable. Um, the frameworks in those markets might make more sense for activist campaigns. So I would be interested in seeing how many um, microcap investors end up going down that route. And you've seen it. I mean, um, so I think you've seen it. And I don't, I don't think I, I'm, I don't own any of the names I'm about to mention if I mention any. But um, so like Jeremy Raper has gone after a couple of situations now in Europe. Um, not all of those were successful, but you know there are some interesting situations he worked on with uh, Hunter Douglas, and um, there was a, a Cambia uh, automotive um, retailer, uh, car dealer, and uh, Connor Connor Haley went after um, N Labs, uh, which is a yep. Swedish company, and these are interesting situations. I wouldn't say that they were necessarily. Some of those could have been done in similar ways in the U.S. because these were related to takeovers. But uh, I think you're seeing these American investors look internationally. And that's interesting.
0: Very good. All right. I want to I want to segue to uh, going back to Twitter real quick, you know, unbeknownst to you, because you're not active on Twitter right now. I put out, a, I put out a What's tweet. going on? I, I put. I, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I don't mean to scare you. No, no. <laughs> mid mid interview, I put out a quick tweet saying I'm recording an interview with you right now. You got any questions and um, and uh, we got we got a question in. So uh, don't worry, this is, it's gonna, you be prepared. This one, you're, you're gonna, you know. Okay. You might have to send it to your compliance officer right after. But uh, the question is from uh, at Adu Subra, Sub, Subramanian. I, I apologize if I butchered your name. I very, uh, I'll do better next time. Um, he asked the question, um, how does, uh, how do you filter what you consume from research about stocks to daily news? And part two is the best way to get in touch with management when researching companies. And when do you reach out to IR management in the research process, in your opinion? Good so one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you don't really you, you, you want to have to. Yeah. That
1: <laughs> so I would say uh, so what was the first part about? Um, that was about the um, filtering. Sorry, um, right. Right. Filtering yeah. the news. Right. Yeah. Um, the Well, one way I'm doing it is by taking a two-week break from Twitter. Uh, look, you have, to, you have to just work in whatever way works for you. I know it's not really helpful to say that, but um, I guess for me, I don't watch television. I don't own a TV, um, and I don't really watch TV much on my computer. Um, I certainly don't watch the financial news. So that's one way to reduce a little bit of the, of the distraction. Um some of my data sources that I've used and, and liked to use historically is uh I really love um blogs, right? So historically I've loved to read microcap blogs. And it's really it's really fun if you can put all of that together. So what I did was um I just got one of these free RSS feed aggregators. I use uh Feedly. Uh no, I'm not being compensated for mentioning Feedly. Um I'm sure there are others out there. And uh, I just get like, it's not quite a scheduled thing. It's not like a daily digest, but it ends up being something like a daily digest of blog posts. And so every time there's a blog post and I probably have, uh, I don't know, a hundred blogs that are all being fed into this aggregator. So I can just get my news on the nearest, the best new stock pitches like that. Um, I do read forums like Microcap Club, uh, and I'm a member of Microcap Club. And uh, yeah, I love to read um, filings. I love to read financial reports. So uh, I I get um, I will go through lists of recent daily financial reports when I have time and I will just look at them. Like if it's a real company and I've heard of it before, I will pull up its recent quarterly or annual filing and I'll just see what's going on. And most of the time, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, it doesn't result in any actionable thing. But you, you never know what you could learn. Sometimes you find a great idea. Sometimes you learn something that's tangential to something else. Sometimes you find out something that's happening in an industry that you didn't really pick up before. And then you have to go back and think about something else that some other company that you've looked at before and how, how that business might be changing. So that would be about the, um, the data. And the other question about contacting management and IR, uh, it, it probably, it depends because I have, Sometimes met a company for the first time at a conference. In that case, you're getting it first before you really do much research. Uh, but I don't think I don't think you should wait forever to contact management. Um, there are some people who say you should really have everything done, pencils down. You've modeled everything. You've like probably bought at least a starter position, and then you call management. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't necessarily agree with that, but. There are times when I never talk to management because sometimes it's not necessary, right? If you invest in a company that you understand really well, because there's a lot of information out there and you can figure everything out and you're just you're just comfortable, then sure, at some point, maybe you'll call management, but it, you should always be thinking about why you're doing something, right? So I think one thing, one reason why I might be hesitant to talk to management is because I always am concerned about being led in by a good story. So, uh, I will say over time, I think I've gotten better at, at being a judge of good stories and bad stories and, and, and what to believe, but it's just tough. Sometimes, sometimes people are really good salesmen and, uh, I, I have some of these situations with unprofitable investments I've made in unprofitable companies have been because someone was a really good salesman and I'm a bit of a sucker. And uh, I probably should have kept my head into the financial statements a lot more and not listened so much.
0: <laughs> it's hard. I, I got to I mean, you know, I, I listen, I, I do, you know, a lot of CEO interviews and do ma- interviews with management that way. So it's not like they're as in depth. As you know, an investor one-on-one when you really dig into the story a little bit. So it's an art. It's really an art to try and figure out, like, well, what what are some of the questions that I know will get me, you know, kind of the answers that I'm that I'm hoping for and looking for. And then also just going in knowing, like, they're gonna do their. There's not a lot of management teams that'll give you kind of the reality, you know, and also explain to you the downside, you know. Um, there's very very few. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I hope you're
1: not hoping to get the bear case from your management talks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, listen, to be fair, like, I, you know, we've gone, uh, we've both gone to like Microcap leadership summit, the, you know, in person in Chicago. And there's been, I've, I've sat in on a few of the roundtable sessions where there have been, and it's usually the more quality management teams that'll kind of give it to you straight a little bit more as well. That'll say, look, here's, here's what could, here's what could go wrong you know? And like, I, I, I don't know, at least for me, like, I always appreciate that, you know, rather than just everyone saying like, all right, yeah. you know, here's the full flowery picture, you know, yeah. especially the ones that get offended when you do say, you know, well, what could go wrong? You know, yeah. uh, that's, that definitely, you know, they, they shouldn't be taking offense to that question. Like they should expect that to become, you know? Yeah. But anyways, um. so look, we're around the bend here, you know, and uh, I, I haven't even asked my favorite question I always ask on here. So you know, uh, what, what would you say is an investing experience that, that really changed your career the most, you know, or changed your, your thought process as an investor the most?
1: Oh, uh, that's, a little, that's a little tricky. Well, I think for, I'll, I'll go with the easy answer for me, which would be my investment in, in Expel. So Expel has been, and, and full disclosure, I am still a shareholder of Expel, um, although I am uh, short some covered calls on my position. So, uh, and, and that's for tax optimization rather than booking uh, taxable gains at the moment. So uh, I, I invested in Expel uh, three, three and a half years ago or so. It was right after the Q1 numbers came out in 2018, which were blowout numbers. And the stock went from two bucks to three in a day or two days. And I didn't own any when it was at two. And when it went to three, I bought quite a bit. And that went against almost everything that a, a new investor thinks they should be doing. You invest in a stock that just went up 50% or more, even though you already knew about the company before and you had looked at it, you hadn't owned it. and. I think what I learned, or one of the things I learned from that was, I really shouldn't call it learning because I probably would have said that I already knew this, but you really have to take the, histor- the historical price and the stock chart out of the picture. You have to look at everything just as it is today. And when I looked at the numbers, I saw, and I'm talking about per share figures now, uh, the stock was at... and it had just reported a Q1 with 8 cents of after tax income per share. So you can do simple arithmetic, 8 cents times 4 to annualize it, and Q1 is historically a a weaker quarter. So 32 cents of income on a $3.20 stock price, that's 10 times earnings. And they had just reported a quarter where i think the top line was something like 100% organic growth maybe a little less than that obviously the bottom the bottom line had been grew, grew much faster than that almost never have i ever seen a company that posted a year over year growth of 100% organically top line profitable at a run rate earnings of roughly 10 and i was willing to buy a stock for more than it for at least 50% more than the price it was the previous day or two days because the numbers just made perfect sense. And there were some people who were probably very happy to get 50% more than they had the day before in their brokerage account. And those people missed out on one of the greatest home runs in the microcap investment world in the last decade, or I don't know, more than decade. and I've held the majority of my position because the companies continue to execute and the price has always made sense. It's never been that cheap again as 10 times earnings. But the willingness to own a high-quality company at a price that makes sense is something that I didn't have 5, 8, 10 years ago. I, I, I traded in and out of some really high-quality companies before. I've, I, in the past, I even owned stocks like uh, Google when I was in college, I think I owned some Google and at some point I sold it because it was just, uh, it was not crazy cheap. I think it was at something like maybe 12 or 13 times, uh, adjusted income or something. And, and, uh, I mean, why should I own that? Is it going to go to 30 times? And so anyway, I, I think I learned a lot. Um, some of it was from just having more experience and, uh, I hope that I can just keep getting better, right? I, I'm, I'm definitely making better mistakes now than I was five, 10 years ago.
0: Very cool. All right, so to close this out, you know, my last question today, uh, what advice would you have for new microcap investors that, that might be listening to this right now that, you know, are, are want to gain that edge, they, that want to, you know, just be the, you know, really, really get after in microcaps?
1: Sure. Uh, so I will say the hardest thing about being a good investor is that you have to love doing it. And this is probably underappreciated. It's, it's not fair because you're not born with the ability to fall in love with whatever activity you would like to fall in love with. And it's not fair that someone who would really like to be good at something can't necessarily choose to want to do it and to just enjoy doing it. I love games and I'm a bit entrepreneurial. So it was really easy for me to fall in love with investing. I think if you aren't really in love with it, it's not going to be worth your time to, to, to beat your head against this and to try to become some genius investor, some incredible investor, I'm not saying that people cannot become better investors or they shouldn't try to become better investors, but people should focus on the things that they really like to do first and foremost. Um, And then if you really love doing it, you almost won't really need to ask the question of what should you be doing? Because you'll be doing everything. And when you love doing something, you won't need anyone to tell you to, to go that extra mile. I mean, I went to some of these investment conferences when I was in New York City taking vacation time, not because it was a slog, it was like, it was like waking up on your birthday and you get to go to this conference and it's so exciting. And you wouldn't, you, you would have rather been doing that compared to actually going on a vacation that day. And if you feel like that, you will find the stuff to do, I think.
0: That's a great place to end it. And, and, uh, and really well said. So Harris with that, where can people go and uh, follow you on social media when you do eventually yeah. come back?
1: Well, I, I, I think I said on Twitter that I'm going to be back at the end of the month. So uh, I, I will be back at Otter market on Twitter. Uh, and uh, other than that, I post sometimes on microcap club. Um, And uh, if you send me a direct message on Twitter, then uh, maybe I'll give you my email address (laughs) and we can take it from there.
0: (laughs) Very good. Well, Harris, thanks so much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. Good luck, stay safe. And I really look forward to our next chat.
1: All right, thanks, Bobby. A pleasure.
0: podcast. podcast.